Hello, I'm Moira Shuri, the Executive Director of Zocalo Public Square. Our topic today is, are American states better at protecting human rights than the US government? We're proud to be presenting this in partnership with the Center for Social Innovation at the University of California, Riverside. At Zocalo, our mission is to connect people to ideas and to one another. Everything we do is free and everyone is welcome. We publish original writing and convene events like the one we're watching today. Find out more on our website, zocalopublicsquare.org. Today's discussion will examine the convoluted relationship between state and federal governments and show the vastly different approaches to issues that are important to us, such as human rights, immigration, and voting rights. Leading our discussion today is Richard Kreitner, author of Break It Up, Secession, Division, and the Secret History of America's Imperfect Union. Over to you, Richard. Hello, thank you, Maura. And thank you to Zocalo Public Square and the Center for Social Innovation. I'm very excited for this conversation and honored to introduce our panelists. Joining us today are Karthik Ramakrishnan, Jamila Mishner, and Cynthia Buiza. Karthik Ramakrishnan is a political scientist and the founding director of the Center for Social Innovation at the University of California, Riverside. He studies civic participation, immigration policy, and the politics of race, ethnicity, and immigration in the United States. And he's the author with Alan Colburn of the new book, Citizenship Reimagined, A New Framework for State Rights in the United States. Jamila Mishner is Associate Professor of Government at Cornell University, where she also co-directs the Center for Health Equity and is board chair of the Cornell Prison Education Program. She studies the politics of poverty, racial inequality, and public policy in the United States. And she's the author of Fragmented Democracy, Medicaid, Federalism, and Unequal Politics. Finally, Cynthia Buiza is the Executive Director of the California Immigrant Policy Center, which promotes safety, health, and public benefits policies and programs for immigrants. She has previously worked on international civil and human rights issues in Southeast Asia with the ACLU and with the Coalition for Humane Immigrant Rights in Los Angeles. Thank you all for joining me in this conversation. I have about seven or eight questions I really want to get to um, before we open it up to the audience. Uh, these are big weighty topics, so if you can keep it as brisk and brief as possible, that would be great. Um, to begin, my first question is for Karthik. The usual progressive objection to a new federalism or reviving states' rights is that it leaves very vulnerable people, including or especially people of color, behind enemy lines, so to speak, or even more vulnerable to infringements of their civil or even human rights. Why do you think that we should feel less burdened or even intimidated by this argument now um, why should we believe that a revived state's rights or politics of devolution uh, would on balance have more beneficial consequences than it would grave disadvantages? Thank you, Richard. Uh, pleasure to be here. And thanks to Zocalo for hosting, co-hosting this important conversation. Um, so when we think about federalism, especially in the context of immigrant rights and civil rights, it's not a pretty picture, right? So the dominant images in the civil rights context is of governors and sheriffs turning fire hoses on, on, on black civil rights activists uh, and really constraining voting rights. And we see echoes of that today. So when once you had section five of the Voting Rights Act gutted, you're seeing states, especially in the South, but, but, but throughout the country that have imposed measures that have really, um, really hurt communities of color, uh, especially in terms of their voting rights. So it might seem counterintuitive and maybe folly to say that we need to embrace federalism. The kind of federalism we're talking about though is what we call progressive federalism, where we are insisting that the 14th amendment needs to be applied to set a floor to really guarantee those rights that the federal government through the constitution is meant to guarantee and then to build on top of that. Because what passes now for federal supremacy is the federal government holding back a lot of states. States like California, states like Connecticut, states like Illinois, Maryland, New York, New Jersey, that want to go further, that want to expand rights, especially when it comes to immigrant residents, but when it comes to other types of residents as well. So we wanna make sure that the federal government doesn't serve as a constraint to states that are trying to expand those rights. Now, of course, people might say, well, once you open the floodgates, if you're gonna let states expand rights, it's inevitable that states will also contract rights. Well, that's not if you enforce the 14th Amendment 
the way it's supposed to be enforced, which is to make sure that those federal guarantees remain in place. So that's, you know, so what we do in our book is to talk about all of the ways in which um, states have been important champions of, of expansion of rights. So if you think about the right to suffrage, right? So here we are on the 100th anniversary of the federally guaranteed right to suffrage. If states had not gone ahead, you know, starting in the 1800s and then into the early 1900s in expanding those rights and were waiting for the federal government to do it, chances are that we would have waited a lot more decades for that to occur. So that kind of rights expansion is so important because even if we're talking about federally guaranteed rights, those usually come on the building blocks of enough states building the political will, having the kind of experimentation that Judge Brandeis talks of, talked about when he talked about states as the laboratories of democracy to, to really put those building blocks in, pace, in place to push for federal expansion and rights. Finally, I'll say we, we have the example of gay marriage. The right to marriage was something that started first in some localities like San Francisco and then expanded to states like Massachusetts uh, and several other states before being guaranteed by the Supreme Court at the national level. So that's what we're talking about in terms of states. There's plenty of examples. Yes, there, there are examples uh, and really painful ones, including current ones of states like Arizona on the immigrant rights context that are taking away rights uh, or, or, or just enacting harsh policies. But there is a flip side to that and we wanna pay enough attention to that to figure out how those occur, why they occur, and what can we do to uh, expand on those. Thanks. I'm gonna go to Jamila now, but just an observation about that. It seems to me like there might be a, a bit of a tension uh, saying that we're, we want a federal, you know, federalist a floor below which rights cannot drop. And yet the, the assumption is that this framework of states' rights is needed because the federal government is not there and is not doing that right now, right? It's uh, progressive states' rights is a way to, you know, fill the gap when the federal government is not um, defending those states' rights. Um, observation, I was, and it's kind of transitions to my question for Jamila. Um, your work on Medicaid, this, this great book, um, has shown how federalism frameworks have further marginalized black and brown people you know, throughout history, exacerbated inequality and even lessened political participation. Why should we, we be wary of the idea of a progressive reclamation of states' rights? And how does the thorny saga of Obamacare's Medicaid expansion um, reveal the limits of relying on the states to, to protect people's rights? Hey, you know, I think these are difficult questions. One of the things that I found myself struggling with as I wrote the book um, was how kind of contextualized these assessments of federalism and states' rights really are. So when I, when I first started writing the book, uh, it was, um, you know, still during the Obama administration. And, uh, you know, folks were saying, you're making this argument that sounds like a critique of federalism. Uh, and, and that makes sense during a time, for example, when perhaps I feel better about, from the perspective of healthcare, um, about what's happening, um, about what the federal government is doing, right? And so uh, when there's more kind of confidence in what's happening at the federal level, uh, then perhaps we are more willing to embrace critiques of, of, of the states and, and of states' rights. And, um, and then of course, while I was still writing the book, President Trump uh, came into office and, and there were people who said, well, <laughs> now federalism feels different to us, right? And, and now we are thinking about progressive federalism and we're, we're breathing sighs of relief that states have the ability uh, to protect uh, their denizens in ways that um, you know the federal government is either unwilling to do or, in fact, completely hostile towards. And so that was a real eye opener for me. Just seeing both writing the book, my the tone that uh, that I had towards federalism changed because I was writing it during this time of transition, and the way that people responded to the work changed because it was during this time of transition. And so in many ways that underscores the complexity of this, which is that assessments of federalism are really tricky. It depends on our political positioning and on our political context, right? And what it kind of taught me 
is to be very cautious about painting federalism with an overly broad brush, right? Um, and saying sort of federalism is good, federalism is bad. What I think that federalism does is it creates kind of conditions of possibility, right? It creates conditions of possibility. And those conditions of possibility, because of the sort of um, uh, the nimble nature of federalism, are dynamic. They change over time, depending on who's in power and what their political prerogatives are, which means that we have to sort of constantly be evaluating and reevaluating what it means to say um, that's, that, that, that we ought to amplify states' rights or, or what it means to, um, you know, uh, to, 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 to boast about or be excited about federalism. But I don't think it's a straightforward answer. And I think the healthcare case really, um, really makes that clear. You know, in the book, I emphasize the inequality that is engendered by federalism. Uh, and it's true, it, it, you know, what state you live in is a really arbitrary basis upon which uh, decisions about, for example, whether you can have access to healthcare, and even on the immigration side, decisions about your membership in our social and political community uh, should, shouldn't in an ideal world be arbitrarily decided upon um, based on what state you live in. And in that sense, uh, federalism, it engenders this kind of inequality that means that immigrants in some states for no reason, for no reason that has a clear moral grounding are gonna have such different, um, such different rights and access to, to different resources. And so I think that there's something unsettling about that and it's not ideal. However, um, we don't live in an ideal world. And so um, the question is in a context that is, is far from ideal, um, is it the case that federalism and states' rights can be leveraged to minimize pain, right? To minimize suffering? And the answer to that is yes. There are consequences to that. The one of the consequences is that we get this inequality, both in people's material lives and democratic inequality in access to, 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 people's, to people's rights and people's sort of access to the, the, the system of democracy. And so that's bad. That's something that, that is unfortunate. Um, but again, given the context that we're facing, uh, it, it's, it's hard for me to sort of say, no, this is bad. States shouldn't be trying to make these progressive moves because it's gonna engender inequality, right? Um, it's true if, if you raise the ceiling without raising the floor, there will be more inequality, right? If the federal government doesn't raise the floor that everybody is operating under, but particular states raise their ceilings, then we get more inequality in the aggregate. And that's the, in the book, I'm really trying to highlight that and say, that's not good. And it's more of a call for the federal government to continually raise the floor um, than it is for them to constrain the ceiling. But, you know, there's a lot of tensions and complexities there. I guess I, I imagine that Karthik, uh, you know, sees the building going up, you raise the ceiling and then you raise the floor, you know, once there's more room to, to go up. You, you, uh, Jamila, you were talking about immigration. So I want to go to Cynthia, you know, who's, who's been very focused on, you know, immigration policy in California. Over the last five to eight years, California has taken a number of steps, driver's licenses, you know, various sanctuary laws to protect undocumented immigrants and, and others you know, from the federal government and from federal agencies. So I was wondering if you could talk a little about, about that, about what you've seen California enact in a, in a you know, in, on policy that has been several steps ahead of the federal government. And also just on the ground, you know, with real people, how, how has that impacted their lives for the better? Thank you, Richard. And thank you, Zocalo and the Center for Social Innovation for hosting us. You know, California is a very interesting case study in federalism and in states' rights because exactly uh, what Karthik and Jamila already pointed out, that it has managed over the years to decrease the pain and suffering of many vulnerable people that live in the state. We were not always like this. You know, we were, uh, of course, we started with Prop 187 many years ago where we wanted to, or California wanted to take away a lot of these opportunities that it is giving now to immigrants and documented and, and uh, documented alike. But to your point, Richard, there has been, I would say, a constellation of progressive immigration policies that has been passed in California, not just over the last eight or nine years, but actually in the last 15 years. 
You know, we have in-state tuition for undocumented students, for example, which happened many years ago. And this is because the state recognizes the fundamental role and contributions that immigrants play in California. So you now have uh, policies like healthcare for undocumented children and young adults, which is really a good model for making sure that you have a society where everyone is healthy and can thrive. That's really our uh, uh, framework for trying to include undocumented immigrants in our healthcare system. Immigrants can now drive in California. And, it, and, and many researchers pointed out that it has not changed any public safety outcome. In fact, it has made many more immigrants feel safer on the road. We have very uh, tight sanctuary policies, though not perfect, you know, in, in, in the vein of the Truth Act, the Trust Act, and the California Values Act, which is uh, an attempt to make sure that, that we limit the cooperation between uh, immigration and customs enforcement and our local police. This and many others, I, I'd say there's maybe more than a hundred uh, small and big pro-immigrant policies passed in the state in the last 25 years. And it's primarily because there is an underlying um, uh, aspiration, I think, among Californians, but especially among immigrant populations in California to end the two-tier system of existence that is really what is uh, what many of us, many immigrants in California are living now. And if it means making sure that we insist on a human rights-based framework to ensure that folks that are suffering, especially now, you know, what I wanna point out is this pandemic and the multi-level crisis we are going through in relation to our racial justice issues and and our governance issues, it has created a compounding of not just suffering, but vulnerabilities in immigrant populations. To your, to the second part of your question, what is going on with immigrant families now? It's dire. You know, people who are afraid uh, already are even more scared to access benefits that they're even eligible for. In a time where healthcare is so crucial for everybody, people are hesitating to go to hospitals. You know, children continue to be separated from their parents. Uh, immigrants are unable to shelter in place because they are one month, one paycheck away from losing their homes. They are very close, many of them, to being houseless. You know, many immigrants are, are, are going through what we now call the digital divide because we just make assumptions that since we are a country and a state uh, that has uh, made advancements in technology that everyone can have access to that. That's not true. In many parts of California, people are not able to do online classes because they don't have regular access to uh, uh, Wi-Fi. So this is, uh, this is the other side of arguing for uh, federalism in states' rights is because as, as Jamila pointed out, these huge inequalities will significantly impact more people if some states weren't enacting policies that tries to, pro to protect its vulnerable populations. And it's not just California. I know that New York and other states like Illinois and even Colorado are passing progressive laws that's trying to protect targeted members of their immigrant population because absence of that is just dark. It's, it's, it's dire and it's even worse. Let me ask you just a quick follow-up. Given everything that California has accomplished in the last 15 years, what more could the state be doing to protect immigrants' human rights? Well, the example that I'll cite is the Health for All campaign and, and the proposal to ensure comprehensive access to medical for undocumented immigrants. Mm -hmm. We have about 2.4 million undocumented immigrants in California, many of them members of the workforce, many of them work in vital industries that ensure that the state uh, continues its, its, its thriving economic activities, of course, notwithstanding the pandemic right now. But really what we're hoping is to, to ensure that everyone can have access to healthcare because I'll tell you now, many seniors uh, who are, whose families are affected uh, by the health, this public health crisis do not have access to healthcare. Mm -hmm. And so what we're hoping to do is 
uh, get the state to agree to cover as big a number of undocumented immigrants as possible in our healthcare system. There's a conversation around uh, greater uh, protections for immigrant workers in the farms, in the fields, for example. Uh, we have uh, uh, still a big agenda. We are not we are not done in making sure that California continues to show that if we do this, there is a way as well to harmonize this in other parts of the country. Right, thank you, very interesting. Um, Karthik, uh, sticking with California just for another couple of minutes, there's a very interesting section of your book about the history of California um, using its its state authority, its, its state's rights, um, you know, for fairly repressive or exclusionary, even racist purposes. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and how that shapes your ideas about balancing out the possibilities here of progressive and regressive state citizenship, as you call it. And then also, you know, the, the transition um, that we were just talking about to a more sort of enlightened, humane, welcoming policy over the last 20 years or so. Um, how does that shape your ideas about the possibilities for a revived, you know, progressive states' rights agenda? Thank you. Yeah, one thing I, uh, you know, I should mention is this book is co-authored with Alan Colburn, uh, who, uh, you know, his specialization is in political history, and you know, did a, 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 a you know a big part of the work in the book in terms of going to archives and really excavating that part of California history, uh, as well as uh, the the history of Black people in the United States as well. Uh, and 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 it's important that. This book is not only about immigrant rights, it's also about black civil rights using a citizenship frame. And we should not uh, have rose tinted lenses when we look at California, because for the first 150 years of California's existence, um, California was a trendsetter going in the other direction of removing rights of peoples. And it was, it was there from the get go, right? From its founding, it took away rights not only of immigrants, also of native peoples and, and, and black people as well, but they really um, specialized, if you will, in taking away the rights of uh, Chinese people at first. So you had a lot of Chinese who had come to California to work the gold mines. Almost immediately, they passed a miners tax. Soon after the founding of the state, they passed laws that, that basically um, took away the rights of, of Chinese people to testify. Uh, in court cases, and they spread that to other populations as well. And they kept ratcheting up the pressure. Many people, when they think about immigration restriction, think of the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act at the national level. Well, California passed many of these restrictions before that. And the major reason why you saw immigration restriction through the Chinese Exclusion Act was because of California. So California passed a revision to its constitution in 1879 that was far reaching. It, and, it, and it literally had an article in that constitution titled the Chinese. And what it did is it, it forbade Chinese people from, from being employed um, either in the public sector or, in, uh, or in, the, in many parts of the private sector, right? And this is why you had this phenomenon of Chinese immigrants opening up laundromats, right, in San Francisco and in other places, because they could be business owners, but they could not be employees. They could not be public employees or employees hired by, um, by public corporations. So that's, that part of California's history has continued over the decades. So in the early 1900s, California passed the alien land law, which said that you had to be a US citizen in order to own title to land. So that affected a lot of Asian immigrants, uh, including Japanese immigrants and Indian immigrants. And, uh, they, and those immigrants had to come up with creative schemes to try to retain ownership of the land. So for example, uh, Japanese Americans, they had their children, they, 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 by then you had had a native born uh, population uh, that, 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 um, that they could transfer the title to. So many Japanese Americans many Japanese immigrants transferred title to their children uh, and, and kept ownership that way. The Indian population, they didn't have children that were born in the US yet. Uh, they had more recently arrived. So you had this phenomenon of a lot of Indian immigrants in the Central Valley and in Southern California, the Imperial Valley, marrying Mexican American women in order to retain title to land. So it's really fascinating. 
And I think that's also an important part of the story is that you have these harsh immigration laws that get passed, but it's also pretty interesting to see the kind of resilience of immigrant communities to be able to respond uh, to these laws. But California continued that, and it continued that even after 1965. That was a landmark legislation that opened up immigration uh, to many parts of the world, but it also put a cap on migration from Mexico for the first time. And that and the ending of the Bracero program meant that you had a lot of undocumented immigrants in California and elsewhere, and, it was, and they were undocumented because of the way we changed our laws. Mm-hmm. The fundamental uh, dynamic of farm workers and others working in seasonal labor continued. And so what did California do? California was one of the first states that passed laws to crack down on employers and, and really harsh laws uh, on undocumented immigrants. So 150 years of that, it's pretty amazing that in the last 20 years, we've flipped and gone in the completely other direction. And why is that the case? Well, it's because of organizations like California Immigrant Policy Center and all of the regional coalitions that they've built. Prop 187 also meant you had a lot of Latino and Asian American voters that that started naturalizing faster and really remembered all of that harsh legislation where the Republican party took a nosedive within the matter of a decade because of those harsh laws. And then finally, you had many legislators, especially in the Latino caucus, but 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 other legislators as well, who cut their teeth in these immigrant rights and civil rights fights in the 1990s Once they got into power, it wasn't just that, right? They got into power, Democrats took over, but the social movement actors kept pushing. It was not easy. Jerry Brown, we see him, we show in our book, by the time you get to 2015, 2016, Jerry Brown is this champion of immigrant rights, but it took a lot. And I think Cynthia could attest to that. There were a lot of fights within the Democratic Party among allies to keep pushing Jerry Brown. So by the time we get to the end of his second term, he has become a champion of immigrant rights. And that's where we say, we can talk about California's citizenship. It is this progressive citizenship, but it was the result of some intense struggle and power building and these coalitions between legislators and movement actors that finally put it over the top. Right, very interesting tour of the state's history. You know, my my obsession is secession. And I was really kind of astounded that 15 years after the Civil War in that 1879 California Constitutional Convention, somebody actually threatens to secede from the Union, that California will secede if, um, you know, the Congress doesn't pass a Chinese Exclusion Act, um, which is just this remarkable, you know, afterlife of of this concept that people think ended with the Civil War. My own little, you know, pet uh, obsession there. Um, Jamila, I want to go back to something that you kind of left off with a few minutes ago, that if Democrats, you know, just that support for states' rights on the left, especially for progressivism, rises and falls depending on how much power, you know, they have um, in Washington. So do you think that um, if Biden wins the presidency, if the Senate, you know, the Democrats retake the Senate, does all this talk about, you know, progressive federalism and states' rights, was it simply opportunistic after Trump won and does it all go away? Or do you think that there's something more fundamental and long-lasting that's going on here? Um, um, you know, I would say both end. I think there's certainly some opportuni- opportunism that emerges and not just on the left or with Democrats, but, you know, we see similar kinds of dynamics on the right and with Republicans um, who, you know, will engage in behavior like preempting, you know, local policy uh, in, in their state legislatures, despite a sort of um, professed respect for local discretion and um, and, you know, so I think that it, when it comes to federalism all the way down from, you know, the, the federal government to the states to localities, uh, Democrats and Republicans are very strategically um, aware of the implications of who has power uh, for both the limits and the possibilities of how they exercise um, the ways that federalism constrains and enables them. So there's some strategic um you know realities that 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 members of both parties are navigating quite straightforwardly and self-consciously um, across the board. There, at the same time, I do think that there are a more fundamental set of issues at stake, um, and that 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 mean that this isn't all 
strategic all of the time, right? Um, and, and that often uh, it's the case that the, you know, and this is something that Karthik was saying that I think is really important uh, to, to sort of underscore, which is even beyond that sort of layer of strategically approaching uh, federalism and states' rights with an eye towards getting whatever it is that, you know, ideologically or through partisan lenses you might want to have, um, there's also the reality uh, that the way that you sort of, um, that, 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 that folks navigate uh, federalism um, on some fundamental level is through building power, right? And I think that that means that there is a kind of underlying motivation uh, to build power consistently over time. And although the extent to which that works out in your favor will wax and wane, right? You'll get um, the Prop 187s and then you'll also get kind of follow on over time in relation to those, um, those more regressive policies that provide either opportunities or necessities for continuing to, to build power going forward. Um, and what that means ultimately is that um, there is a kind of necessity and a priority around uh, not just thinking kind of strategically, but thinking protectively, right? So if you're interested in minimizing harm and minimizing suffering, um, and if you're interested in and committed to uh, a particular uh, vision of people sort of living with full dignity and having access to a certain set of rights, uh, then even when uh, the, the folks that you favor are in power, you don't necessarily then sit on your laurels and say, okay, we have a Democrat in the federal, uh, in the federal government, we can just relax, we don't have to worry about this. You keep building power, both so that you can, in many ways, in the ways that that, that Karthik pointed out, so that you can set the terrain that then pushes even um, that 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 floor that it's, is established at the federal level up, right? And because you recognize that 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 situation can change, and you still need to be sort of pushing and um, creating the necessary conditions at the state level. So I guess I would say even beyond particular strategic considerations that have to do with who's in office at any given point, the dynamic nature of, our, of, our, of the political field and of federalism more generally means that there are reasons to always be thinking about how to exercise um, you know, the kinds of um, opportunities that federalism creates irrespective of who's in power. I think that's a really good way to thread the needle between, you know, ideological consistency and political, you know, pragmatism. Um, Cynthia, I, I want to ask you a version of the question that we kind of started with, with Karthik. Do you worry that a framework that enables California to, to enact more beneficial welcoming policies to immigrants um, also empowers a state like Arizona or Alabama to enact more repressive policies, specifically on immigration? It's 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 a it's a an interesting question because even before California has created this momentum around its progressive immigration policies, many other states were already doing uh, or or promoting anti-immigrant laws. If you remember SB 1070 in Arizona, it was one of the more controversial uh, laws that came out of that state. I. I am a bit concerned that there will be this uh, race to the bottom with 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 anti-immigrant states, just to sh you know, just to show that it can be done differently. Uh, but I do believe that rather than focusing on that, we need to focus on the progressive states that are actually creating this huge momentum for inclusion. And there's many of them, as I said earlier, where a, a framework or a blueprint for how you actually do immigration right has been seeded. And it, has, it is um, creating some really good outcomes for these states. As I said, you know, so much has been um, uh, debated about whether California was gonna go down because it's treating immigrants right, rights, and, and it's not. It is the fifth largest economy in the world. And uh, I'll, I'll, absent this pandemic, we were in a good trajectory because we have decided that uh, 
we can go a different direction in terms of protecting the rights of immigrant populations. And I think just going at it from a positive angle rather than looking at this uh, race to the bottom of who could treat immigrants worse uh, is the framework I would go for. And so we- Oh, sorry, go ahead, Cynthia. I want to jump in here for a second. If that's I was just saying that uh, uh, we, we, we've seen the benefits of that for immigrant populations who are able to uh, create small businesses, for example, uh, uh, among other things. But I think that, that, that yeah, I, 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 my third thought was a little bit uh, disconnected. So I'll, I'll go over to you, Karthik, and I can just jump right in afterwards. <laughs> yeah, my apologies, Cynthia. No, one thing I wanted to say on this, Richard, this is the kind of argument the Obama administration was making in 2009 and 2010, telling California that it should not be passing some of these sanctuary type laws because that would allow laws like Arizona's to stay. And in fact, we actually saw that Arizona's law was unconstitutional. Mm -hmm. I actually think it's a bit of a red herring to say California, Illinois, New York, slow down because by doing this, you will then give license to these very conservative, repressive states to even double down and be harsher. They are not waiting around for California and New York and these other states to do the harm that they want to do. So in fact, that, you know, we've actually seen this dynamic. We've seen this dynamic with the Democratic president that is trying to pass comprehensive immigration reform and wants a uniform national policy and that's actually something a lot of immigrant rights advocates, not only in California, but elsewhere, have been very concerned about the kinds of things that get included in a comprehensive immigration reform package. You saw that in 2013. First of all, they were moving away from a family-based visa program, right, in order to get enough conservatives on board to pass that. There were a lot of harsh um, enforcement measures in that comprehensive immigration reform bill that passed the Senate in 2013. So that is something I think that is just really important to be careful of, is this notion that somehow by allowing states to raise their floors, that other states are gonna reduce theirs. Uh, it has no bearing on the other, one on the other. And in fact, the Supreme Court has weighed in and prevented a lot of the progressive laws on immigrant rights have actually with, with, withstood constitutional scrutiny Whereas a lot of the harsh laws that states have tried to pass have failed at the U.S. Supreme Court, so I think that's and there is a kind of change considerably in the last couple of years, and is about to change even more. You know, can, um, yeah. Can I chime in really quickly on this point, and I'll just say really quickly, which is, you know, political scientists have identified this phenomenon of policy diffusion, right? Which means that it is true that what one state does can affect what other states do but not in the sense that what California does is going to affect what Mississippi or Alabama or Arizona do. In fact, the states that tend to share ideas as far as policy diffusion are the states that are more similar, right? Ideologically, politically, demographically. Um, so it's more likely that by California doing something progressive, it's going to inspire Oregon or Washington or New York or Massachusetts to also do something progressive so that the fire will spread in that kind of positive way, right? And less likely that it's going to cause some sort of like negative reverberation in Mississippi. And, but the opposite is true that when Mississippi does something that often Alabama or Georgia or so on and so forth will do it. But this is when other institutions come into play, like the courts who will put some limits on how much those states can kind of race to the bottom in an ideal world. The courts don't always play that role, right? Now, it is true that overall what this means is that California and the states like it will pull away um, and, and Mississippi and the states like it will pull away. And so we are getting more inequality. Um, and I think that, that that doesn't mean that we tell California to not do better so that we can limit inequality by keeping the, 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 the kind of progressive states low. Um, but it, it does imply a few things. It, it implies we should be aware of that inequality. And it implies we should think about how to mobilize, organize and build power strategically maybe regionally and across the country to find ways of both allowing um, the states that are willing to do more to do more, but also mitigating um, the, the kind of effects of, of the folks that just happen to not live in those states, really being not able to live lives that are materially and civically as rich and full. 
very interesting points. I mean, that might be a good segue into the kind of summative question I wanted to put to each of you. And Jamila, you can take it first, and then we'll do Cynthia and, and Karthik. You know, obviously, America is bitterly divided. My own, my own book argues that we might actually be breaking apart. Um, and that growing talk on the left of, of embracing states' rights, that the ideology usually associated with the right might be some evidence of a kind of hollowing out of the national enterprise. So my question is, do you see um, this kind of framework as something that might encourage or precipitate that kind of national dissolution? Or do you see it as a way to kind of accommodate our differences in something that could actually save and preserve that, you know, the national enterprise? Uh, that's a really difficult question. <laughs> I spent six years not answering it. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess I would say, uh, and I'm not trying to make an end run around the question, um, although I will say that my inclination is not towards optimism. And so, you know, uh, you can take that with a grain of salt. But, but I guess I would say this, we have to confront and contend with these, um, with these forces that are pulling us in such very different directions in ways that are becoming increasingly sort of predictable and in configurations that we, um, that we that we're increasingly understanding to be patterned, right? And so that's why we can look at into this landscape and say, oh, this is bad. Like, how do we maintain um, our kind of status um, as a polity, as a unified polity, when we see these patterns unfolding more and more? Uh, I, I think what when 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 states like California do some of the things that they're doing, uh, it it does push us towards a point where these questions are coming to a head, right? Um, and when, when the president of the United States looks at the kind of the, the, the distribution of COVID cases and says, oh, but it's just all the blue states suffering, right? Uh, and when that's a logic that resonates with your constituency, oh, it's just those people in places we don't care about suffering, uh, those kinds of things, right? And, and those things are sort of uh, uh, in refracting a uh, kind of national sense that, hey, California feels like a different country, right? New York feels like a different country. These places are very different um, relative to the folks who are living in, you know, fill in the blank stereotypical places that we find are, feel like they're opposite of California or New York or what have you. Um, and so as those differences become more and more apparent, either because of the kind of blatant ways that they are politicized um, blatant and frankly destructive ways that they're politicized or because of the actions that state that these various states are taking that highlight how very different they are, how, what a different commitment they have to, for example, citizenship. Um, absolutely, you know, California, at least in its, mo it's in its modern incarnation, certainly not always, um, is, is showing us, right, that it is in some ways a different country relative to other states. And I do think that is forcing us to contend um, with the, the depth of our divisions. And the depth of our divisions in this country are certainly racialized, right? Um, but they're racialized in a way that is institutionalized through the in institutions like federalism and through our other political institutions. And that is why these things are able to come to more and more of a head. So I guess I will say that I, I think we're getting to a point where we absolutely are going to have to contend with uh, with these difficult questions and won't be able to avoid them. Do I think it's going to end well with us remaining uh, like a singular poly that learns our lessons and then moves forward together in a unified way? Uh, no, not especially, but um, I'd be happy to be wrong. Yeah. Cynthia, you have any thoughts on that? Whether a new federalism could possibly bring Americans together as it, you know, kind of pulls them or lets them go their own ways? Absolutely. Um, so, I've lived in countries where separatist movements have some succeeded, some not, like in Indonesia and in East Timor is an example. Uh, but I, you know, I may be going through an existential crisis right now, <laughs> but I'm still a dreamer. I'm gonna, I'm gonna insist on that. And I say that because I am speaking as an immigrant who came here 16 years ago with a certain notion of the American dream, right? And so what is the referendum on that? I may not be directly answering the question that you're asking, Richard, but I think for me, it's like the ruptures and divisions that we have with each other, with the different states, 
So Jamila Smith, what of those that are highlighted could actually continue to bring us together? And for this, I will not discount the fact that there's some serious, badass organizing and movement building going on in the ground, not just in blue states. You have no idea what organizing is happening in Texas, in Alabama, in Arizona. We have folks that are uh, expending blood, sweat, and tears so that this notion of uh, uh, we, we the people and a country as one can continue because as I said, I don't know that there has been a final referendum on the American dream. And if, if there is, I would like to know what it is about because right now I still believe it. Thank you, very beautiful. Karthik, any thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, I, I tend to be an optimist as well. And you know, when you look at, Cynthia talked about other countries. I mean, look at other divided, deeply divided societies. What is one of the solutions we know works? Federalism helps. Right? If you have deeply divided societies that are divided, especially along geographic lines that reinforce other divisions, federalism helps. Because if you don't have federalism, what we, what we had in the last four years is this notion that when a party takes over, and especially if Congress is not able to pass anything, you're going to endow the presidency, the executive, with so much power that it's like a whipsaw action when each party takes over the presidency that is really, really harmful to divided societies because then the prize becomes so big and it becomes a kind of winner take all dynamic. And that people are talking about how we're reaching civil war era like conditions in terms of the depth of divisions we have. One way you cool some of those passions down is to say, let's give states a bit more leeway and not think that once one party takes over at the national level, they're gonna just take it in the 180 direction of what you have for the last four years or the last eight years. Now, that does mean, for example, that people in say New York and California and Connecticut, and it's not just California, right? There are actually a bunch of states that have been expanding citizenship rights and it's not just immigrant rights. When you're talking about rights of ex-felons, right? Other kinds of black civil rights, gay rights, et cetera, um, it might mean that we need to build that, if not a 50-state coalition, at least a 30-state coalition in order to pass congressional law. And that's the thing I want to say is that the reason why you need to continue having states raising those ceilings, raising those standards, is that short of executive orders or some kind of magic Supreme Court decision that's going to universally expand rights across the country, you need to pass congressional law. And the way you pass congressional law is to get these senators and these states to start exploring these ideas on how they can meaningfully expand rights. Without that, it's just not gonna happen. So that's something I would say. And, and, and so a lot of folks now, as, we, as we're on the eve of this election, they think the solution is gonna have, on the progressive side, it's gonna be a Biden-Harris presidency with a court that is packed that will then miraculously enable all of these rights to expand. I, 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 am, I, am, uh, I, I am cautious that that is actually gonna play out. I think that we cannot ignore the role of states. So a lot, and, and that's one of the implications in the book as well. A lot of funders think we need to win the presidency and by winning the presidency, it's this kind of silver bullet or you know this kind of the, this kind of magic in which all of this rights expansions will proceed naturally we didn't see that in the obama era and the only and this is something even the president obama said you cannot just count on the president to do all of that work on rights expansion you have to have congress on board in order to have congress on board you have to build state power you cannot ignore the states and so for people who think that somehow you can just get away with this by taking over Congress and the presidency and even the courts. History shows otherwise. You have to build power and policy innovation at the state level in order for that to roll up to the federal. Right. I think that jobs really well with something Jamila was talking about earlier about, you know, about reckoning um, or reconciling uh, ideological consistency with political pragmatism and pushing forward a state-based um, approach, even at a time when you do have federal. 
Um, I have a question from the audience here, which is about immigration. So I'm going to direct it to Cynthia first, at least. If California, um, this, this person says, enacts an open border policy, let's not use that terminology, but we'll say more liberal, you know, policies with immigration, and the federal government tries to um, enforce federal laws or, or impose its own vision, you know, obviously, presuming a hostile federal government, um, what then, you know, often clashes, you know, over states' rights have, have led to showdowns as in Little Rock in 1957, or of course, you know, the Civil War. Um, so, so what happens if the federal government says, uh, we don't, we don't, I don't think so? Well, I mean, we're already seeing that play out, right? In the last four years, that's, that's been mostly the case. And more recently, uh, on the Remain in Mexico policy. So, uh, as I, you know, the border policies is always a, a hotly contested issue. Uh, and I think for, for uh, right now, a lot of, uh, there's, there's a lot of uh, uh, preemption, right? Uh, there's, there, at the end of the day, California's hands are tied when, when it comes against uh, uh, what the federal government can do on immigration. And so what we try to do as advocates on the ground is to try to create a broader set of framework, uh, including, uh, you know, using international human rights framework to pressure the U.S. government to protect populations that are fleeing persecution because we are a, a signatory to, to the United Nations Declaration on Human Rights. So there are tools at our disposal uh, as advocates, as human rights activists to use so that we can hold a hostile federal administration accountable to some of its more um, cruel immigration policies. But uh, is it, there are all the more reason that we need to move towards a harmonization of what Karthik was saying earlier would bear enormous pressure on the federal government to fix this broken immigration system once and for all, because that is the root, the root solution to this, the root causes of our immigration challenges lies in that, that we become able one day to stop playing football with this issue and really fix it because it's other countries have done it, you know, but we just, we, we couldn't get there somehow and hopefully we could beyond this year. Um, I, have, I have a question I'm gonna to put to Karthik first. And I'd love to hear Jamila second on this. And this is about climate change, which might be, you know, ordinarily thought of as outside the, the rights framework. I think it, a lot of people are trying to bring it in. Um, how does a revival of the role of states in American politics shape climate policy? It seems like the truly necessary actions that need to be taken are not only on the national level, but on, the, but on a global scale. So um, what can any one state do about that? Uh, or is that, is that kind of a step backwards from, from what really needs to happen? Yeah, so, so actually, Richard, it's not that too far afield from a rights-based framework. One thing I'll say about the book, not only do we look at citizenship in a federalism framework to say that there's not only national citizenship, but state citizenship and local citizenship. And by the way, there are many localities that have ID cards that, that expand health services and other things, right? So we haven't talked that much about local citizenship. We also talk about different dimensions of rights. So we typically, when we think about citizenship, we think about legal status and the right to vote. That's kind of usually seen as the hallmark features of citizenship. What we say, we actually have five dimensions of rights. One of them is the right to free movement, by the way, which comes up not only with respect to immigrant populations, you know that tagline from Southwest, you're free to move about the country. Well, many communities of color are not free to move about the country. You see that with stop and frisk, you see that with, with police brutality, right? So that's an important right. But another right we talk about is the right, what we call the right to develop human capital. So you have all these rights that are just disconnected right now. When we talk about the right to um, education, the right to healthcare, the right to shelter, the right to clean water. What are all those a part of what we say, this is the right to develop human capital. These are the fundamental building blocks that you need in order to thrive as a human being. Climate change puts that at risk, right? It puts that at risk in terms of your ability to stay in place, to, to remain where you are. It, it harms your ability to have access to affordable water, for example. So it does, even though we think of climate change as not affecting rights, it affects rights in a very fundamental way. 
And absolutely, not only can states do something about it, states are doing something about it. So in California, for example, you have the cap and trade program where California actually has not quite treaties, but it has agreements with the provinces of Quebec and Ontario in terms of its cap and trade program. This is something that is constitutionally actually permissible. This is also a fight right now. There's a longstanding fight between California and the federal government on the Clean Air Act. California has had this traditional waiver where because of the smog that we have in Southern California where I live, that the federal government traditionally has allowed California to put standards that are more stringent than the national standards. The Bush administration was fighting California, but once the Obama administration came in, the Obama administration synchronized its national air standard quality with California. Now California is trying to do better because we do not meet our global need to reduce greenhouse gas emissions without a state as large as California advancing on greenhouse gas reductions. We'll see what happens. Very likely, if it looks like a Biden win uh, is indeed going to take place, you're probably going to see the federal government drop its lawsuit against California, and you're going to see continued progress. In the last, uh, you know, in the last debate, people were talking about, um, you know, climate change and the kind of progress. It was actually, I think, in the vice presidential debate, Vice President Pence said that, well, the U.S. has already made so much progress. Why has the U.S. made so much progress? Because of states like California and others that have made that progress. It's not because the federal government under, uh, under President Trump and Vice President Biden have somehow miraculously moved our country towards those greenhouse gas reduction goals. Right, yeah. They're, they're just gonna follow the science wherever it goes, you know, um, they're, they're lying. Jamil, do you have any thoughts about this on climate change and federalism? I do, and uh, um, you know, I, I really would echo what Karthik said around the kind of reality that the rights-based framework and an emphasis on climate change policy are absolutely compatible. And, and, and as is, you know, a rights-based framework and a justice-based framework, right? And I think that there are issues of both rights and justice when it comes to climate change, particularly for the marginal populations that we've been talking about throughout this entire conversation, when we think about uh, the suffering that will happen on account of um, climate change, and, and in particular, if we don't enact policies that sort of, um, that, that address some of the worst excesses of it, you know, it, that suffering is not going to be equally distributed. It's gonna be precisely the folks that we're, we've been talking about who are most vulnerable, um, black and brown folks, immigrant populations, people living in poverty, they are going to and are already bearing disproportionately the burden of, of climate change run amok, right? And so this is another way that it fits into both of those frameworks, which is that climate change is really important um, with respect to you know, how it's going to affect whom. And I, I think that federalism fits in here in a couple of different ways. You know, Leah Stokes is a political scientist who, who's written a great book um, about climate change policy. And uh, she looks at, you know, different state level battles around clean energy and, and other sort of climate change policies and focuses on states like Texas and Ohio and Kansas and show some of the complexities of federalism here. So I think much like uh, the conversation that we've had reflects, it's not a straightforward story, right? It's if you just think about California, it feels like climate change has been, you know, in, in many ways uh, boosted um, and, and addressing that has been boosted by the what states like uh, California have done. But there are plenty of other places where there are interests um, who are in fact um, bad actors who are influential and who are preventing states from being able to respond appropriately. So I think we see similar complexities when we look at climate change as we do when we look at immigration policy. And as we do when we look at healthcare, we see that there are no straightforward answers, but we also see that there's no straightforward path uh, to advancements if we're just thinking about the federal level or the national level. And that's why we keep coming back to these questions of states because we're looking for pathways and for possibilities and it's not clear what those pathways and possibilities look like um, at the national level, right? So um, I think that climate change really underscores many of the same challenges that we've been discussing uh, throughout um, 
you know, throughout. And, and it's even more striking of an example uh, because what happens um, is going to ultimately affect all of us, right? And this is true also of immigration and true also of healthcare because of our shared um, humanity, right? And what happens to any of us in any place uh, is relevant to what happens to all of us as a polity, right? And um, that's one of the things that, one of the, the moral challenges um, of kind of the, the inequality that federalism breeds is precisely that, right? It feels like our human dignity is contingent on arbitrary geographic location in ways that we should be deeply uncomfortable with, right? But that reality notwithstanding, what that, 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 that should, should sensitize us towards always aiming for something better than what states' rights can provide us. We should always be aiming for more than that. We should be aiming for a high ceiling that everyone can benefit for, from, right? But in the meanwhile, we have to reduce human suffering. And for that, we need to activate uh, the states, right? Um, and in doing so, we may also activate a certain set of politics, right? And that's where the issue of power building comes in that allows us to, to get closer to that broader goal of everybody um, being able to have their human dignity enacted through these various policy arenas. Extremely interesting. Just that last answer sent me off into 12 different directions that I wish we had time to explore. Unfortunately, we're out of time. We have to end things here. Um, thank you all for sharing your insights. It was an excellent, very interesting, fascinating conversation. The discussion will stay on Zocalo Public Square and Zocalo's podcast along with an article covering what we discussed here and short interviews with everybody on the panel. They, they asked me my, my favorite meal, I said a hamburger, I couldn't think of anything else. Um, once again, we would also like to thank the Center for Social Innovation, which co-presented uh, today's conversation. And to everyone watching live online, thank you very much for your questions. And we hope this sparks many more conversations. So thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you.